John 7 in your Bibles, please. Picking up in verse 32 this week. We will finish John 7 today. Next week be venturing into John 8, although next week the scene won't change dramatically. We'll still be at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where we are this week, which is where we were, where we've been since the beginning of John 7, the Feast of Tabernacles. Message title, The Dividing Line of Truth. We talked about truth quite a bit this morning. We're going to be talking about truth more this evening. It's kind of a truth sort of a day. I'm very glad in that sense that we, uh, that we did not have to cancel this evening's service for snow because uh, it allows us to frame our entire day around the concepts of truth, and I was... I'm very thankful for that. Sir Winston Churchill was a British politician. He was also Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, particularly uh, well known as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the atrocities of World War II. He was known to be a great statesman, a tremendous politician, but he was also known to be a very good orator, a good speaker. He had a lot of good things to say. Many of his short, clear statements are still quoted today within numerous contexts. Uh, he just had a way of framing things in such a way that they were well-spoken, they were memorable, oftentimes a little bit sarcastic with a little bit of humor in them, and uh, he had a way of, of, of saying things in a way that stuck. He had good insight into human nature. He had good insight into ideology and philosophy and had a strong grasp on reality. And this is one of the things that he said at one time. He's quoted as saying this. The truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. Let me, let me say it again. The truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. What... Sir Winston Churchill is saying is that the truth cannot be overthrown. It cannot be disproven. Because it is. It is what it is. Malice, anger, people can attack the truth in anger. People can deride the truth in ignorance. But when all of the derision is over, when all of the attacking is over, when people have spent their days writing against the truth and speaking against the truth, and yelling against the truth and fighting against the truth they're all lying in heaps tired and worn out from all their battles and the truth still reigns supreme that was what he was saying in that quote he remarks that regardless of how much people may not like the truth regardless of the lengths that men will go to avoid the truth or to counter the truth or to try to dissuade people of the truth truth is what truth is it's not going away and it's not changing anytime soon it's truth that we are thinking about this evening from John 7, verses 32 to 53. We'll finish the chapter. And as we look there this evening, we will learn two important lessons that remind us of the preeminence of truth. These are concepts regarding truth. It reminds us of, of truth being in a class all itself. It's preeminent. It's there. No one can oppose that which is true successfully. So let's look at these two lessons together, beginning in verse 32 through verse 39. Number one, killing the witness. 
does not kill God's truth. Killing the witness of God's truth does not kill God's truth. Look at me in verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him that we know in the context is that he was Messiah. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come? In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Killing the witness does not kill God's truth. Recall the context within which we rest. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. At least one year after the healing of the man at the Pool of Bethesda. It was either one year, so that would have been at the last tabernacles, or it would have been about a year and a half at the Feast of Pentecost of the year prior. The topic of the Sabbath had come up. The topic of the Sabbath had come up because the man with the infirmity of 38 years of the Pool of Bethesda had been healed on the Sabbath, picked up his bed, and walked. And so the topic of the Sabbath came up in Jesus Christ declaring that the Pharisees were not judging righteous judgments. His boldness was shocking to those in the temple complex who are listening to him speak. In response, well, the response was varied. Some said, this man is an imposter. Others said, this man must be Messiah. Look at verse 31. Many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles? Than these which this man hath done? This man has done great miracles. Is there really going to be a man that comes and does greater things than this man? Is that really what we're looking for? We're waiting for a man that's going to do better than healing a man that was had an infirmity for 38 years? He's going to do better than feeding the multitude of 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fishes? Are we really? Is, is Christ really going to be better? They said it's unreasonable to think that this is not the Christ. Look at what he's done. As we continue in verse 32, the Pharisees are becoming very concerned with the people's response to Jesus' teaching. See, the Pharisees have tried to publicly scorn the truth in hopes that it would go away. They have tried to ignore the truth, thinking that maybe if they just ignore it, after all, they're the religious leaders of the people. If they just ignore it, it's just going to fizzle out. Well, scorning it didn't work. Ignoring it didn't work. They see now that the truth of God as properly applied through the teaching of Jesus Christ must be stopped in a different way. They can no longer take the passive road. They have to stop it by force. We talked about this a little bit last week. If you can't kill the message, what do corrupt men do? They kill the messenger. So the Pharisees commissioned some servants and they give them the authority to arrest Jesus. And they command them to do this. So they say, okay, go take this man. A somewhat 
interesting act to be sure while these men come to Jesus. We do not know if there were any words that transpired between these men and Jesus. It would appear that he's still in the temple. It would appear that he's still doing what he was doing, just teaching. Regardless of where he was, though, and what may have transpired, Jesus' words to them are not what they expected to hear. He said to them, Yet a little while am I with you. Verse 33. And then I go unto him that sent me. Verse 34. Ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Jesus warns them that in these days, in the days to come, they will seek him, but will not be able to find him, will not be able to follow him. Perhaps Jesus' context as he spoke this was uh, thinking about those crowds that had followed him in Galilee. Though he distanced himself for a time, perhaps went uh, into a mountain alone to pray, or whatever the case may be, went, alone, went to be alone with his disciples, eventually these multitudes would seek him and they would find him. And perhaps it's the same here in Jerusalem. They were commissioned, these servants of the high priest were commissioned to, to arrest Jesus. They knew where to find him. They knew exactly where to go to get him. He was where he always was. He was not afraid. He was not hiding. He was not um, trying to... He was not causing sedition, trying to deliver his message seditiously. He was just telling people, teaching people in the temple. And so they come to him, they find him as they always find him. He says, but you know, there's coming a day where you're going to seek me and you won't find me. There's coming a day where you will look for me and I won't be there. His message was one of warning and also of urgency. Calling upon them, these who have come to take him, to heed the message while the messenger was still there. This urgency was founded upon the very actions that had brought the servants from the Pharisees to Jesus on that day. Jesus knew his time was short, that the Pharisees were becoming more desperate to silence the truth with every passing day. And if the Pharisees had their way, to be quite honest, that would have been the day that they would have silenced Jesus. But we know from the scriptures that his time was not yet at hand. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. It would be yet another six months at least before Jesus Christ would be crucified. Well, the Jews were very confused by this declaration of Jesus. They had come to seek him. He says, well, you found me, but you know there's coming a day when you'll seek me and you won't find me. So notice what they say to him, 35, 36. Then said the Jews among themselves, whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, ye shall seek me and shall not find me? And where I am, Thither ye cannot come. They're confused by his declaration. They don't know what he means. Is he going to go to the Gentiles, the dispersed? Is he going to go up into Samaria? Is he going to go into Rome, into Greece? Where, what does he mean? We are, we're going to look for him and we won't be able to find him. Well, the conversation kind of ends abruptly. Or at least the thought ends abruptly. Because immediately it says now that we, uh, we are at the last day. Now, the, there's two schools of thought on this. Some people say, well, verse 37, we have a scene change. We have a new day. We have a new conversation. Everything before was not really a part. I don't really believe that. I think that we're continuing in the conversation. Uh, there is a reference here to time. That time could be transition, but I believe that it continues straight through, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit. 
It's specifying here in verse 37 that it is the last day known here as that great day of the feast. feast that we're talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. However, there was an eighth-day tacked on to the end. That was a ritualistic day. It's not a day that was declared in the Scriptures. It's a day that has been added beyond that. Uh, was this that day? I believe so. Uh, I, I was not able to get a complete straight answer. I wish... Uh, there was um, someone that was very in touch with Jewish culture. Maybe perhaps they would have been able to tell me if the great day is considered the eighth day or the seventh day of the feast. I was not able to, to discern that completely. Or perhaps one of you can do a little bit of extra research this week and find that out. But this was called the great day. And this, was a very, this is still a very big deal for the Jews. Recall that the Jews had three feasts that they needed to go to a year. I've said this a bunch, but repetition is the key to knowledge. So we're going to say it again. There was the Passover feast. Fifty days after the Passover feast was the feast of Pentecost. And then we have this feast in the fall after the harvest, and this is the feast of tabernacles. These were the three commanded feasts in the law for the Jews. This was the tabernacles feast. This last great day of the feast was a recognition of the final day of the feasting for the year. The final day of the major feast. That would be recognized in a year. Now there would be other feasts still. We have, uh, we'll find in, in John chapter 8 the Feast of Dedication. The Jews do not recognize actually the Feast of Dedication as an official feast. But the New Testament does recognize it as an official feast. We'll talk about that when we get there. Feast of Dedication by the way is, is what we call, what we know of today as Hanukkah. Tabernacles is the feast that Jesus is in at the time. It's a feast that has everything to do with rejoicing. It has everything to do with praising God for His provision. It's the feast where they would have sung Rejoice in the Lord Always. And again, I say rejoice if they were to sing that song. It is the feast that is supposed to rejoice in all that God has done for them throughout the year. And I urge you to carry this understanding of what the feast was meant to symbolize. The rejoicing, the provision into the following statement. See, the, the, the tabernacle is, is this, this great feast of rejoicing, the final day being the day of the pinnacle of this rejoicing, and the people's hearts and minds would have particularly been turned to this concept of the completion of the feast, the provision of God. They spent the entire week, they spent the entire week leading up to this great day where we have the great feast. This would have been the, the biggest feast of the week on this day. Notice what Jesus says to them. He stands and he cries to them on this day. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he says, if any man thirsts, thirst for truth, thirst for righteousness, thirst for a relationship with God, he says, come to me and drink. On a day of feasting, in a feast that particularly referenced the provision of God for his people, Jesus Christ says, are you thirsty? Come to me. 
I'll give you to drink. He says the man that does so, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I think we've probably heard this statement before. As a matter of fact, we've heard it before in the book of John. In the book of John, chapter 4, Samaritan woman at the well by the city of Sychar. Jesus Christ said the same thing. As she was coming to draw her water, he said, I can give you water to where you'll never thirst again. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. I believe what we can take from this is that the, the analogy that Jesus Christ used in John 4, and probably the analogy he used in John 3 with Nicodemus, and all of these analogies that he uses throughout are not just one-time use analogies. He used them quite often, depending on their context. So Jesus remarks to them the great provision of this day. Now we get to the reason why I believe that this is still an event tied that verses 33 through 39 are all one big conversation. I don't believe they're broken up um, into separate days. See, Jesus mentioned that he was soon leaving and he called upon men to seek him while he may be found. But in the statement in verse 28, Jesus was specifically mentioning that though he would leave, his message would not leave. Though they would kill him, his message would endure in the hearts and through the lives of those who received it. Though Jesus would be taken out of this world, he would send the Holy Ghost to live in and through the lives of those that received him. There is a continuity of context here that I believe we cannot lose sight of, all the way to the idea of him speaking concerning the Holy Ghost, the Spirit that would come, all the way back to Jesus Christ teaching them, saying that you know me, you know whence I am, I'm not come of myself, but him that sent me is true. Now we all know from scriptures why it was and is that Jesus died. Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God for sin, and to secure the means of mankind's salvation through the remission of his sins. Spiritually speaking, this is why Jesus died. But let's think physically for a moment. Physically speaking, Jesus died for a... He, there was another cause. Physically speaking, Jesus Christ died at the hands of the Jewish leaders of Israel to silence his message. That is what Jesus Christ is alluding to here as he says, I'm going somewhere that you can't follow. You come, you found me, but I'm going somewhere that you can't follow. But there's still time, he says. There's still time to believe the message if you thirst. Throughout the ages, thousands of men and women have died in an attempt to silence the message of the scriptures. For thousands of years, evil men have been convinced that if they can only silence the messenger, then the message will go away. Even in this country, in this modern age of tolerance, in this age of information, in this age of so-called enlightenment, men are convinced that if they can only silence you and I as messengers, then the truths of God's word will simply fade into the annals of history. And then revisionist historians can come along and even scrub it from the history books. But they're wrong. Because the truth of God does not depend on who is teaching it, but it depends on the source of the message. 
Jesus Christ is announcing here that though he goes away, when he goes away, there's going to be someone else that comes. He says, out of your belly, if you will receive it, will flow rivers of living water. He spoke of the Spirit, the Spirit that would come upon them after Jesus Christ was glorified. So though Jesus is going away, though the messenger is going away, though they won't see him anymore, listen folks, the message isn't going anywhere. The message is going to be around. For every man that would seek to silence the truth, truth lodges itself in the hearts of new men and women. And we can rest assured that truth will continue until the day that the influence of the Holy Spirit is removed from the world. We believe this to be at the rapture and then Satan will finally be free to deceive the nations unrestrained until the time of the witnesses, the time of the sealing, all of those end time events. So we understand that killing the witness does not kill God's truth. Second, lesson to learn this evening. God's truth is, by its very nature, divisive. God's truth is, by its very nature, divisive. This is verses 40 through 53. We're going to see some division here. We now hear some of the thoughts of the people who are listening in on this conversation. The people listening, having heard the words, were convinced that Jesus has prophetic authority. It was quite obvious that what Jesus was saying was true, but those unwilling to hear it continued to contest the truth on pretty petty means. Look with me in verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. The prophet, the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David? out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So some contention arises. The great problem is that Christ was supposed to be out of Bethlehem. And here we have Jesus of Nazareth, Galilee. Great, great source of debate here. Why do I say it's petty? Well, because it would have been as simple as going up to Jesus Christ and saying, you claim to be the Christ, but... He was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Where were you born? And it would have cleared everything up because it would have been quite obvious Jesus Christ saying, I was born in Bethlehem during the census in Cyrenius. But of course they didn't do that. You wonder why they didn't do that? Think about it in the quietness of the moment for a minute. Why didn't they ask Jesus Christ where he was born? Because they weren't interested in where he was born. They weren't interested in obeying his message. If they had heard that he was born in Bethlehem, would that have changed anything about these men who were contending against Jesus? Wouldn't have changed a thing. They weren't interested in obeying the truth. They were interested in finding reasons why they don't have to obey the truth. Have you ever seen this? We sang a song tonight just before the message. Words of life and beauty teach me Faith and duty. Have you ever come across a Christian who spends all of his mental effort in his Christian life trying to come up with reasons why he doesn't have to do what the Bible tells him to do? Trying to come up with reasons why it's okay for him to watch those movies or go to those places or 
wear what he's wearing or say what he's saying or think what he's thinking or do what he's doing. And so all of his all of his mental exercise in his Christian life is scouring the Bible for reasons why he can do what he wants to do with his life and not have to obey what the scriptures tell him. This is the kind of people that we're dealing with right now. People that aren't interested in going out and finding the truth. They're interested in going out and finding reasons why they don't have to obey the truth. Well, now the scene changes back to the Pharisees and the commission which they gave their servants. See, verse 43 says that there was a division among the people. It says in verse 44, And some of the people would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they, the Pharisees, said unto them, the officers, Why have ye not brought him? We sent you to bring him. Why didn't you bring him? Their answer, verse 46, Never man spake like this. Basically, they're saying that they would have taken him, but they were quite afraid that he was right. And no man of Israel was interested in opposing God. How could we take him? No man has spoken like this before. No man has said such truth. No man has spoken with such authority. What are we supposed to do? How could we take a man like that? Well, this was unacceptable to the Pharisees. So they answer in verse 47 through 49. Then answered the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Truth has divided those who seek their own glory from those who recognize God's glory. Truth has divided those whose interest it is to maintain their false religion from those whose interest it is to obey God's word. Now what I find ironic, or one of the things I find ironic, there's two things I find ironic. The first thing I find ironic about this is the standards by which the leaders seek to prove that Jesus Christ is false. Have we believed on him? This is their standard. Have any of the leaders believed on him? I need to interject a small point here. As believers, we are tempted oftentimes to judge the validity of a doctrine by the amount of support it finds in our Christian circles. By this standard, those things in Christian culture that become the most popular or those things that are the most accepted are those things which are the most accurate. We even heard a little bit of this this morning, did we not, from Bildad? Bildad said, search, our, search the, the fathers. Let them teach you. He was appealing to the majority. It's a logical fallacy. But if we look through our history, it can usually be seen that the Christian culture crowd follows that which is most expedient and that which is most convenient. Now, sometimes they have truth. Sometimes they have error. But really, the, 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 the crowd that follows Christianity, if we were to take Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 13, the the animals that hide under the shade of the tree and flock into the branches of the tree, the tree being symbolizing the kingdom of heaven, those ones that flock to it have never been interested in truth as much as they've been interested in convenience and expediency. May I give you an example, quickly? I have numerous commentary sets at home. I don't put a lot of time or effort into reading commentaries. Uh, I try to spend most of my time reading the scriptures themselves, but I have a couple of commentaries that I have come to know and come to trust. 
And when I find myself in a place where I'm thinking something a little bit beyond what I'm comfortable with, just with me, I go and I see what some of these other men have to say. And one of the, the commentaries I have is a commentary, the authors, great scholars, godly men, great insight. And one of the, the key facets of this commentary, published in 1981, it says, with the NIV. This was supposed to be a big selling point, is that it used the New International Version. And the entire commentary, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, was keyed into the New International Version. Now these were our scholarly commentaries here. They get into the original languages. They do a lot of digging. There's a lot of great things to say. Uh, they, they align with us in doctrine very well. Why the NIV? Well, in 1981, scholars and Christians were bending over backwards to implore the Christian community to switch over to this incredible translation of the scriptures, which isn't even a translation, it's a paraphrase. They were imploring them to do that, and they were pushing it like crazy, and it became the most popular, and it still is the most popular, newer translation, this century translation of the Bible in the English language. Probably going to be eclipsed here in the next few years by the ESV. However, today I can point you to articles that reveal that the whole motivation behind the push for the New International Version was a motivation that was centered around making money. The publisher and the copyright holder needed a version of the Bible that they could call their own, that they could sell and make a bunch of money. They needed a layman's version, and they were pushing the NIV for that reason. It's documented fact. It's also recognized today as a very poor attempt at a translation. It's recognized today as not even really a translation, but a paraphrase. And it is rejected by large portions of the evangelical community, in fact, because of its unscholarly translation qualities. What happened in the past 25 to 30 years whereby all of Christian scholarship and all of Christian culture elevated this paraphrase of the Bible only to end up casting it aside and saying, actually, that one's no good at all, and elevating a new one in its place. And by the way, at some point that one's going to be cast aside and they're going to elevate another new one in its place. Because people are going to start running out of money and they're going to need to publish a new version so that they can have more money. Another copyright. See, what happened is that truth was sacrificed on the altar of commercialism. And many people got very rich as they fleeced the flock of God. And so the Pharisees asked, have any of your leaders believed on him? Are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to follow what all of your leaders are saying? I mean, we are your leaders. We, we have studied. We have searched the scriptures. We have memorized the Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. You ask us anything in them. We've got it memorized. Is, are you really going to hold them up? Against us, what, what leaders have followed him? Bringing it back to verse 48, we recognize that the standard for truth is ne will never be who has accepted it or who has rejected it, 
But the standard for truth is always who is the source and does it conform to God and his word. Now the irony of this argument, the second irony of this argument, is that following directly on the heels of them saying, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? We have a man stepping up and trying to temper them. This man's name is Nicodemus. Now, we've seen this man before. John chapter 3. Recall a Pharisee came to Jesus by night and was asking him a bunch of questions. Jesus Christ didn't answer his questions very directly. He said, you must be born again. That was his answer to these questions. Nicodemus, verse 50, saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet, and every man, every man went into their own house. Nicodemus diffuses this situation. We're going to find Nicodemus come up one more time in the book of John and recognize that he is, in fact, a follower. So when they ask, Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed on him? Well, in fact, they have one sitting right with them. Nicodemus rebukes these men, calling on them to be less hasty in their dismissal calling upon them to listen to his claims before they dismiss him, to try him to, before they seek to kill him. And that diffuses the situation. The people go their way, but the dividing lines have been drawn. Truth has been dismissed. Truth has been replaced. Truth has been... It's been decided. The messenger must be killed. As we meditate upon these events, as we close, let's put some pieces together. First question I want to ask is this. Where was the, the, the line of division in relation to the truth of God in this passage? Was the line of division drawn between those who understood Christ's words and those who didn't? No. Was the line of understanding drawn between those who realized Christ's authority and those who didn't understand Christ's authority? No. They all knew what Christ was saying. They all recognized his authority. So where was the line drawn? It was drawn between those who were willing to accept the authority and the message of Jesus Christ and those who were not willing to accept the authority and words of Jesus Christ. May I put it this way? The dividing line was drawn between those who willingly believed and those who were unwilling to believe. Here we find ourselves in the same place. We found ourselves all throughout the book of John. A place where we must realize that the spiritual dividing lines of this world are not drawn within the context of if the gospel is true, but rather if the person who hears it is willing to accept it or not. And this helps us as we deliver the gospel. It helps us in two ways. First of all, it helps us with boldness. Because we need to recognize that we are not ashamed of the gospel. That we need not be afraid of what people think or apprehensive to share the truth. Because the truth is the truth regardless of if somebody accepts it or rejects it. But second, it helps us because it, it liberates us in our delivery of the gospel. We do not need to spend a bunch of time when we're telling someone about the gospel trying to prove to them that the gospel is true. 
We do not need to spend a bunch of, of time going from, from proof to proof to proof to prove to them that the truth is there. Now, do, do, do we open the Bibles and show them, look, Jesus was God, look what he did. Do we open the Bible and tell them, look, these are the things that God claims of himself? Certainly we do. But we don't need to spend time and time and time trying to give them some sort of tangible proof that Jesus was who he said he was and that the gospel is what it claims to be. See, the gospel is the gospel. The truth resonates in the heart of every man. And it's not our job to prove the truth. It's our job to preach the truth. It's not my job to get up here every week and try to convince you that what the Bible says is true. I, I am not interested in convincing you that what the Bible says is true. Because it's true. I'm here telling you what the, what the Bible says is true. And reflecting the truth of the Bible to you. It, it's within your heart to determine whether or not you're going to choose to believe the words of this book. It's my job to deliver the words of this book. And that's what you're doing when you're witnessing. My sister, when she was in uh, college and I was still there, she began conversing with this guy. He came up to her one day when she was off campus at Starbucks. And uh, she and her friends were there. And, they, and a guy sat down and began to ask him a bunch of questions about the scriptures. And he would always go back to these logical arguments and these scientific arguments and all of these things. And uh, I told my sister, she came to me for advice, and, and he w emailed back and forth with her, asking a bunch of questions about, well, you know, you say salvation isn't by works, but belief is a work, and you have to do something to believe, so belief is a work, so how can salvation not be by works if you have to believe? And these sorts of questions that people use to try and prove their point in regards to the gospel. And I told her, I said, don't play his game. Don't play his game. You do not have to prove to anyone that belief is not a work. You are under no obligation to prove to anyone that it is not a work, not by works of righteousness which we have done, that it is not a work to believe on Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't bear that obligation upon yourself. You bear the obligation of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling them. If they're going to play a semantics game, you can, you can tell them this is a game of semantics. It really doesn't matter. You know what the scripture's saying. I know what the scripture's saying. But you don't have to play their game. And this is freedom. This is freedom when we evangelize. Don't play the game that people want to try to play with you in regard to the scriptures. Give them the gospel. Tell them the truth. And let the truth testify for itself in their hearts. If they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen. You can spend all day in a dictionary trying to prove to them that belief is not really a work because uh, belief is a, an existential thought. And if you're existentially thinking something, then you're not really believing. You're, you're, you, you can spend all day trying to rationalize how belief is not a work in this example I'm giving. But that's not going to get them any closer to the gospel. Because if they're going to accept it, they're going to accept it. If they're going to try to play a game of semantics to get out of it, then they're not interested. And the, Holy Spirit, uh, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit has been refused. We can still give them the gospel, but don't play their game. What freedom. What freedom we have in Christ as we share the word of God. See, because 
The truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. Those were the words of Sir Winston Churchill many years ago. A quote, not from an inspired man, but from a wise man. His words reduced into one sentence would be what we find written all over the book of John. That truth is truth. You cannot kill it by killing its witness. Truth is truth. It is divisive, but it is never changing. So how is your relationship to truth this evening? We spent really a whole day, actually, considering the implications of truth. This morning we thought about truth in relation to error. Truth mixed with error is still, in fact, error, we said this morning. This evening we recognize the truth of God, the dividing lines of the truth of God, the reality that truth continues regardless of who is killed. You, by killing the witness, you don't kill the truth. Truth will remain. How is our relationship to truth this evening? In the gospel sense, have you accepted the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you on the side of truth as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ? In a discipleship sense, words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Are you on the side of truth? Is your heart a reflection of the truth of God's word? Are your thoughts a reflection of the truth of God's word? Is what comes out of your mouth a reflection of the truth of God's word? Is what you do with your hands a reflection of the truth of God's word? Is how you spend your time a reflection of the truth of God's word? You see, because here's the, the reality. Truth is truth. When we get to heaven, we will not be able to rationalize away our sin. We will not be able to look at God and say, well, I was well-meaning at the time. We will not be able to look at God and say, well, you know, I came to that conclusion initially that what you said was true. But then as I thought about it, I recognized that uh, there's, there's a lot of ways that you could have interpreted that passage. And so I didn't really think that that was a, a necessary interpretation. So I just kind of wrote that off. None of that's going to be valid. God's going to take all of those interpretations and those surmisings and he's going to add them to the pile of wood, hay, and stubble. And he's going to light them on fire and they're going to burn up. And all that will be left are those gold, silver, and precious stones. How's your relation to the truth this evening? We'll close with that thought. Let's pray.